This morning, I want to focus on the change in perspective in the life of the Apostle Paul. But before I begin, I want to do something just a little bit different, and I want to show you two photos. And the first photo, or the first picture, is a very clear picture. It's a picture of two faces looking at each other. It's pretty clear, isn't it? But I can tell from some puzzled faces that some of you see something else. Well, for me, it's two faces. So I'm right and you're wrong. The second picture is a picture of a cat on a stairwell. And it's actually a well-known photo, and it's been debated on internet for years. And the fact is, is the cat climbing up the stairs towards you, or is the cat coming down the stairs towards you? And there's been lots of scientific explanations on how and why. And if you want to know the answer, you'll have to go to Mr. Google. But the thing is about these, it's perspective, isn't it? And how we each see something. And some of us can see things differently from somebody else. And some people will fight tooth and nail that their perspective is the only one, it's the only one that's right. And no amount of amount of argument will make them change their mind even if they are wrong and it can all lead to all sorts of disagreements and mis misunderstandings and eventually to a lack of unity and it can be the same trying to understand different belief perspectives where there's a predominant culture or religion it often becomes so ingrained in traditional lifestyle that it can be difficult for some to see past those beliefs and practices and superstitions. And I believe New Zealand is fast becoming one of these diverse populations. We're now made up of um, a, a lot of different people groups. We've got Maori and Pacific Island and European and South African and Asian. Asian all with different worldviews and perspectives. But perhaps more alarmingly, an increasingly portion of our country is now being persuaded to follow a godless worldview with little or no regard to our founding Christian beliefs whatsoever. More often, this view is based on lack of absolutes and moral truths. They're just doesn't seem to be any right or wrong anymore. In fact, the Barnabas Fund, which I know some of you subscribe to, have got a petition before the government right at the moment protesting against the erosion of hard-fought Christian rights. They quote here, religious freedom is being significantly eroded in many countries throughout the world to a resurgence of intolerance and uniformity. The creeping and insidious marginalization of faith and the shrinking of our hard-fought um, freedoms have also been a concern in recent years. 
Christians may be falling through the cracks and their rights being neglected, sidelined, or undermined. And so that's before the government at the moment. For many holding a Christian view, it can be difficult. And for the more zealous of you, persecution can certainly follow. And I know some of you get that persecution in your workplaces. Christian view can be quite different to a secular worldview. The world certainly doesn't understand it and are generally unlikely to embrace it. In fact, governments, including our own, uh, seem now more inclined to protect the rights of the secular minority over the decent moral values of the majority. What many don't understand and are blind to is that there is a spiritual dimension. And the tension between our physical being and the spiritual realm is building. It's the age-old battle between good and evil. And you just got to see that tension building as you watch the, new, the world news, particularly right at the moment. The spirit of lawlessness abounds and there's no doubt we're in a conflict that the scripture speaks of between the prince of darkness and the God of Israel, the God of creation. There's a huge number of temptations and distractions and dictates that our society tells us on how we must conform and live and they can cause us to be spiritually blind. But it's not all doom and gloom. God has sent his word and a true perspective for life. He sent the Holy Spirit, our helper, who can intervene and open our spiritual eyes to the man called Jesus, the one who is capable of transforming lives. For many, it may be just the gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit that leads to that change in perspective and a renewing of the mind. For a few, it's a radical intervention by God that changes the lifestyle. And I can testify to that. All you have to do is tell your pastor and then you too can stand up the front. But I know people in Tarpo that have had some dramatic and radical changes in their lifestyle just recently. And I know there's, you know, some amazing testimonies here in this church as well. For example, we find in the Bible where there's a great transformation and a change in perspective is in the life of Saul, or the Apostle Paul, as he later became known as. You know, sometimes we hear that religion is just a support to the weak. Well, having looked at the life of Saul, I can tell you he was no weak dummy. He was a very intelligent young man. He was born in the Roman city of Tarsus. That's in modern-day Turkey. He had Jewish parents who possessed Roman citizenship, and that was a very coveted privilege that Saul, their son, would also possess. His parents were fervent Jewish nationalists, they followed strictly to the law of Moses and they sought to protect their children from any Gentile contamination. Saul, a Hebrew Jew, grew up able to speak Greek and as was common at the time, he had the dual Roman name or Roman Latin name of Paul. 
He'd learned to work with his hands in the craft of tent making. And he was later to study intensively under the rabbi Gamaliel, one of the most respected and talented Pharisees of the day. He was literally a doctor of the law. By the time Saul was 21, he was amongst the most educated of Jews, having mastered the Tanakh and all its rabbinic interpretations. Now, the Tanakh is a, it's an acronym for a compilation of books. It's the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. It's the prophets, and it's all the Hebrew writings. So it's a huge amount of work to learn and to understand. And in the seven, eight years that Saul studied, uh, he'd earned probably the equivalent of our today's a couple of PhDs. And he'd also earned the right to become a member of the Pharisees like his father. His predetermined, ruthless perspective that he was always and only doing the will of God led him down the path of just extremism. He was so zealous for his Jewish faith that his did not allow for any compromise or a different perspective, whatever. And so Saul begins ravaging the Christian church, going from house to house, dragging men and women off to prison and often to their untimely death. In Acts 26 verse 10, it reads, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. By definition, Saul had become a fanatical murderer. In the book of Acts, the literal Greek says he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was dedicated to eliminating what he regarded as the cult of the Nazarene. In Acts 28, 26, verse 11, And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And does that sound like the Middle East in the last few years or what? It was all done, unbelievably, in the profound belief and name of God. He believed he was doing nothing wrong, simply upholding the Jewish law, which he had studied so intensively. Philippians 3, verse 6. As to zeal, this is Paul persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, Paul feels faultless. He was just upholding the law. He was doing absolutely nothing wrong. And it's interesting how God can use the most abhorrent, terrible situations for good. Because as the persecution increased of the believers and they were to scatter, they were actually to carry the gospel much, much further beyond Jerusalem. So Saul, with letters of authority from the high priests, sets out on a journey of some 125 miles to, to uh, Damascus, Damascus. And there he's going to arrest and extradite these scattered believers. 
on approaching Damascus, Saul is dramatically confronted by a flash of light and a voice of the very one whom he was persecuting. Acts 9, verses 4 to 5. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. And so begins one of the most dramatic conversions in our church history. Saul is blinded by an encounter with the living Jesus. This intelligent, influential, influential Roman Pharisee, persecutor of the church, thrown to the ground, now blind, has to be led on by the hands of his underlings. Can you imagine how Saul coped with three days of absolute darkness, just as Jesus did for us in the tomb? Saul must have faced every demon, every wrongdoing, every murder, every wrong belief, as his theology is ripped to shreds. His intimate understanding of the scriptures is taking on a whole new change of light and understanding. All because he encounters the resurrected living Jesus, knowing that he is both God and alive, and that he himself has been so, so wrong. His perspective is radically changed and renewed as his blindness is replaced with light and revelation. His once elevated status has been reduced to one of humility as a simple disciple named Ananias is given the command, somewhat fearfully, knowing what this man was like, that he must go and pray for him. And so he goes to the house and he places his hands on Saul and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and Saul regains his sight. He's filled with power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and is immediately baptized. When he eats, is strengthened and immediately begins to proclaim Jesus saying, he is the son of God. His evil nature is changed to one of humility, compassion, and goodness. And so he changes his name to the, to the more fitting Paul, which means humble or small. Paul is so convicted, knowing now that righteousness is not gained from the law but only through belief and faith in Jesus Christ. He's prepared to give up and suffer the loss of everything he has, simply so he may know him. And suffer he does. He's imprisoned, he's frequently beaten, he's often in danger, he's lashed, he's stoned, he's shipwrecked, he suffers hardship, hunger, thirst, cold, and exposure. He's changed all because he's found the truth and reality in one person. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. 
It's all fanatic, fervent fanaticism has had a sudden and very dramatic intervention by God. It completely changes his perspective. And so he commits the remaining 30-odd years of his life to spreading and teaching the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ and the free gift of salvation. His education, his background as a Pharisee, his Roman citizenship, and his renewed seal and changed heart all contributed to Paul becoming known worldwide as one of our greatest Christian missionaries, especially to us, the Gentiles. So is the story of Paul relevant for us this morning? Well, it certainly is. Our legacy of inherited sin and personal wrongdoing still holds many captive today. Psalm 51, verse 5. Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. But you can be set free, like Paul, through the shed blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the word declares he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same Jesus today as was in Paul's day. And Jesus reminds us in Luke 4, verses 18 to 19, the fulfillment of the Isaiah 61 scripture that reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, that's Jesus, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So nobody is beyond the reach of Christ. God can save anyone, even the most antagonizing to the faith. Salvation is from God alone and not from any man. It's not from any guru, it's not from any Buddha, it's not from any psychic or mystic or new Asia or any other new world view. Acts 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And that is in Christ and Christ alone. Scripture tells us we must be born again, confessing and believing in Jesus to receive that free gift of eternal life. So what can we learn from Paul's experience? Well, we started looking at a couple of pictures and how differently we can all perceive them. Many are saying today that eventually all religions and all faiths lead to God. So it doesn't really matter which one you choose. Well, I'm sorry, but that's a lie. The truth is there's only one way to come to him. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except 
by me. Can you hold to that truth today? Is it time for a new insight into your relationship with God? Especially with all the prophetic upheaval that's currently happening around the world right at this very moment. Today, we still have, at the moment anyway, the freedom in New Zealand to make these choices. It may not be as radical as Paul, but God is abounding in love and grace and forgiveness for all, regardless of any circumstance that you might find yourself in this morning. That's why God sent his son Jesus, that we might be redeemed from our old sin nature and find a new life, one of grace and hope and peace. It's like Paul's revelation. It's about believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It's about being born again and surrendering our will to what God has for us and not conforming to our old nature and what the world requires. Paul's radical change in perspective and his later teaching does raise a caution for us. We need to be aware today that the prince of this earthly realm is the father of lies and a great deceiver. His name is Satan. We need to be on spiritual alert so we're not led into any new philosophy or some new man-made view which doesn't align with the word of God. Paul was very careful to tell the church in Corinth that when the prophet spoke in church, others should weigh carefully what is said. Even the apostle John wrote that we're not to believe every spirit, but to test the spirits and to see whether they are from God. God's word is infallible. And it's that in which we wholly trust and must align our beliefs and actions and thoughts to. And Chris Hayden last week preached on, in, preached on the importance of knowing the Holy Spirit. So we need to take time to listen and to test and then to be obedient to the call of the Holy Spirit. If you're unsure if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, then get into fellowship with other strong Bible believers. Find someone to pray with you, even this morning. After this service is finished, come to the front, and there are elders, there are mature people here that would love to walk and talk with you and pray through those issues. Go beyond your own safe walls. Be prepared to rethink your perspective and then be obedient to what the gospel declares. Romans 10, verses 10. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So don't let it rest this morning. If you're a mature Christian here, 
And remember the word says, hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. Don't let your first love grow cold. Remain vigilant to deception and be prepared to share the love and the wisdom and the grace that you have so that others may continue to experience and grow into the likeness and the knowledge of Christ. Together, we're called to be witnesses to what God has given us by being salt and light. And so I want to finish with 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 18. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your only Son to be crucified for our sins, that he died, he was buried, and rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. That through him by grace we can be set free, made righteous, and receive the gift of eternal life. <coughs> Father, help us to be your true witnesses. And grant us wisdom and truth in all that we learn and say and see and commit to. And that it would be pleasing in your sight and for your glory. And for your glory alone. In Jesus' name.